Luhan speaks, Putin waits, and Marjorie goes from nuts to soup. No soup for you! On The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, and Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge. Cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 382 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. The Republican Party was formed in the 1850s by those who opposed the spread of slavery. Some 170 years later, it is under siege for its opposition to law and the Constitution and for its slavish backing of a man and an ism who has made it clear that if he or it ever returns to the presidency, he will never give up power again. Witness the RNC calling the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol legitimate political discourse, and its decision to censure Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two House Republicans who, along with other Democrats, are investigating that assault and who was responsible for it, Given the fact that several were killed and hundreds were hurt, including several police officers, at that January 6th attack, an investigation has to take place. But at a recent rally, Trump threatened more violence if the investigators got too close. If these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protest we have ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta, and elsewhere, because our country and our elections are corrupt. They're corrupt. Obviously, any investigation into Trump must be racist because, after all, Trump is white. That made as much sense as what Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Republican from Georgia, who of course would never be censured by her party, said as well. Not only do we have the D.C. jail, which is the D.C. gulag, but now we have Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police spying on members of Congress, spying on the legislative work that we do, spying on our staff, and spying on American citizens that want to come talk to their representatives. Aside from the obvious question, what qualifications are needed to graduate from the University of Georgia, it's clear that what Taylor Greene practices is legitimate political idiocy. But what the RNC did regarding January 6th was far more disturbing, according to Democratic Congressman Akeem Jeffries of New York. You know, the C in RNC doesn't stand for committee. It stands for cult. It's not the Republican National Committee. It's the Republican National Cult. That is the only way you can explain how the grand old party would come to the conclusion that people who engaged in Rampant mob violence urinated, defecated, desecrated the Capitol, brutally beat up police officers, seriously injured more than 140. Police officers lost their lives as a result of the events of January 6th. And the cult says it's legitimate political discourse. And there were some Republicans who dismissed the RNC action as well. Here's Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell. It was a violent insurrection for the purpose of trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power 
after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. That's what it was. While some in the GOP would like nothing better than to focus on President Biden's shortcomings, and there's much to choose from, it looks like the battle between the Trumpsters and the currently outnumbered non-Trumpsters will continue as a competing story. To Donald Trump, the choice was simple. It was a stolen election. The presidency was rightfully his, and all his loyal vice president had to do was to declare him the winner and still champion. Leading up to that fateful January 6th, Trump still expressed hope in his number two. I hope Mike Pence comes through for us, I have to tell you. I hope that our great vice president... Our great vice president comes through for us. He's a great guy. Of course, if he doesn't come through, I won't like him quite as much. And here's Trump during his remarks at that January 6th rally. If Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president and you are the happiest people. And Mike Pence, I hope you're going to stand up for the good of our Constitution and for the good of our country. And if you're not, I'm going to be very disappointed in you, I will tell you right now. And Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a a sad day for our country. Because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. As we all know, Pence refused to undermine the Constitution and do Trump's bidding, which is why, for a year now, Trump has been sniping at Pence, insisting he let the country down. And all the while, Pence took it. One reason why Pence served Trump so well during his four years as vice president is that he always stood behind his boss, never disagreeing, never criticizing. He was constantly mocked for his subservience, but never seemed to complain. That came to an end last Friday in a speech before the Conservative Federalist Society in Florida. But there are those in our party who believe that as the presiding officer over the joint session of Congress, that I possess unilateral authority to reject electoral college votes. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. For anyone who's been following Republican politics, and especially the Trump-Pence relationship, this was a stunner. Lest we forget, many of those insurrectionists who broke into the Capitol last year were chanting, hang Mike Pence. And while Trump has talked about pardoning those who participated in the attack, and while the former president never expressed any remorse over the treatment of his vice president, 
Pence kept his silence. Joel Goldstein is one of the nation's preeminent experts on the vice presidency. A former law professor at St. Louis University, he has been a frequent guest on The Political Junkie. And while maybe one day we'll have him back on the show to find out whatever happened to Kamala Harris, we'll have him talk now about what happened to Mike Pence and what's next. Joel, it's great having you back on the program. It's great to be with you, Ken. I always enjoy it. Thank you, Joel. Well, you've studied Mike Pence as you've studied every vice president, and you know his relationship with Trump. Did you ever see this day coming? No. I mean, vice presidents generally are, uh, in modern times, uh, really always are supportive of the president. That's part of their job is to help the administration achieve uh, its goals. Uh, as an advisor and troubleshooter for the president. Uh, But but Vice President Pence had really taken it to a new level uh, in, uh, you used the word subservience, uh, to President Trump. I had referred to him as the sycophant-in-chief because he went to such um, extreme levels, even among vice presidents, in his praise of, uh, of the president, comparing him to Theodore Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan, um, t- talking frequently about uh, about President Trump's uh, greatness. Um, one time at a cabinet meeting, praising him something like every 12 seconds for, for three minutes. So there was just a whole pattern of obsequious behavior uh, that was really quite distinguished by what happened January 6th and then by the recent speech to the Federalist Society. Vice President Pence was really unique in the extreme, and certainly we never uh, heard him as, as vice president uh, say the words, President Trump is wrong, which he said to the Federalist Society. I also think about Hubert Humphrey, who tried as long as he could to stay loyal to Lyndon Johnson's Vietnam policy until that became uh, uh, untenable. That's a good example of a vice president who was uh, uh, very loyal and who paid a price for it uh, when he ran uh, as, as a presidential candidate in 1968. Uh, many of Humphrey's lifetime um, allies uh, uh, felt that he had uh, betrayed them. Um, and Humphrey really felt, I think, that he was caught between a rock and a hard place. He had quietly uh, criticized or tried to advise Johnson uh, to take a different line on Vietnam, but publicly he had become a cheerleader, and he really did pay a, 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 a price. Um, it, and it's one of the problems that vice presidents have when they run for president is that that you inherit the baggage of the administration that, uh, that, that you served. And Humphrey was a prime example. Not only did he... Hire, did he inherit the baggage, but he looked weak and um, by uh, acting really as such a cheerleader for the war. You know, some have minimized Pence's actions. Uh, They said that he should have spoken up a year ago. Um, I would argue that in a party where an overwhelming number do whatever Trump tells them to do, uh, this speech by Pence showed great courage. Of course, President Trump had been attacking Vice President Pence relentlessly, um, and so to some extent, uh, Vice President Pence is uh, standing up for uh, his, his own action. But, but I think that Vice President Pence does, uh, does deserve credit for doing what clearly was the right thing, uh, both on January 6th, 
when he uh, followed the, the Constitution and the law of the United States and historical practice uh, in recognizing that his role as president of the Senate, uh, presiding over the electoral uh, count, was uh, purely ministerial. Uh, and then I think in this recent uh, speech where, um, where he, he said that President Trump was wrong and that he said, and, and again, I think quite rightly, that there's no idea more um, un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. I mean, there he, um, that to me is a rather strong rebuke of President Trump and an appropriate one. Especially in a party where very, there are very few voices who say, who sound anything like that. Well, I think that, that that's absolutely right. I mean, when you get past uh, people like uh, Representative Cheney and uh, President Bush and Senator McConnell, and uh, that, that there's been a disturbing uh, uh, pattern of Republicans of uh, of uh, either overtly supporting President Trump's claims or uh, uh, are just sort of absenting themselves from the discussion and hoping it'll go away. You know, I think all of this leads to a larger question. Pence has long been thought to have ambitions for 2024. Uh, That's not a surprise. Do you think, this is a tough one, do you think that what he said at the Federalist event, does that indicate that he's standing up to Trump and is launching a campaign? or, Or do you think he's saying by breaking with Trump that he knows his future in the party is over and he might as well go out on his own terms? Well, I, I mean, I think Vice President Pence is, 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 is dealing with, is, finds himself in a context that, uh, that is probably not the one he anticipated or is to his liking. He's struck me as being a pretty ambitious fellow, and I think by all indications, to me, he, he very much wants to uh, run for president. Um, it's clear that, uh, you know, he did do what he did on January 6th, and I think what he's indicating is that that uh, he's going to stand up for it. There's been some reporting that um, that, that he's gotten a number of calls from people, uh, Republicans and donors and so forth, who have been uh, complimenting him on on the speech. Um, and and of course, President Trump, in responding, wasn't uh, uh, didn't bash him as as much as. Uh, uh, he, he's been known to bash some other people. So I, I would think that, that this is the route that, that Pence is going to, uh, to take in a presidential campaign. On, on, the, on the other hand, he, he doesn't really have the alternative of saying, gee whiz, I blew it. I should have, uh, I should have awarded us the election, or I should have, uh, I, I sh- I should have, uh, I should have led the coup. Right, right. I, sh- I, sh- I should have joined the insurrection. Do you have any sense of what Pence's political future is like? Well, I mean, I, w- I would guess he's going to run for for president in uh, in 2024. Uh, I mean, I think that would be what he would like to do. And and then I think it's uncertain as to whether President Trump runs for um, uh, a, a third time. Which it sounds well, like he's planning to do. Sounds like he's he's planning to. Um, it also looks, though, like there may be some others in the Republican Party who aren't necessarily going to uh, to stand aside. Looking back in history, and I know you're talking about the constitutional uh, position that uh, Pence assumed when he was there on January 6th to count the votes, but 
But can you think of a a similar time or as major of a time uh, in history when a, a vice president broke with his president? I mean, we mentioned Humphrey in Vietnam, but is there anything else that jumps out at you? Well, I, I mean, I, I, as you know, in the 18th and in, 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 in 19th century, the vice presidency was was independent of the president um, and often was was uh, had different views. And there were occasions when vice presidents would take action that were adverse to the president. And so Vice President John Calhoun split with Andrew Jackson over uh, nullification and actually voted against Jackson's nomination of Martin Van Buren to be uh, minister uh, uh, to Great Britain. But, but no, I don't think there's ever been a time that I can think of. Well, well and, and, and of course, you know, Thomas Jefferson ran against John Adams. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, under the original electoral system, was the vice president and ran against uh, the sitting president, John Adams. And, of course, you know, John Nance Garner uh, opposed the uh, third term for FDR and ran as a candidate at, in uh, at the 1940 uh, Democratic Convention. But, but certainly in the modern vice presidency, there hasn't been anything close to this situation. And, and, and I think that as Senator Portman and some others said, that you know, Vice President Pence does deserve credit for doing the right thing on, on January 6th. On the other hand, what President Trump was asking him to do was really so outrageous that um, it's really a sad moment when, um, when, when, when doing what is obviously the right thing becomes something that, um, that individuals deserve praise for. Joel Goldstein is a retired law professor at St. Louis University and a leading expert on the vice presidency. Joel, it was great having you back on The Political Junkie. Ken, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. The driving force behind the Democrats' motto of get it done now is the possibility that they could very well lose control of Congress in the November midterm elections. Thus, if Joe Biden wants to get his agenda passed, his party has got to get it done quickly, before November. That means election overhaul, climate change, and whatever is salvageable from Build Back Better, and certainly filling that opening on the Supreme Court. But then came something they didn't foresee. One of their own, Senator Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico, a comparative youngster at 49, suffered a stroke. He's expected to recover, and maybe he'll be out four to six weeks. Nobody really knows for sure. But one thing we do know, the Democrats' fragile 50-50 majority was no longer. 
When I taped my interview with New Mexico political analyst Joe Monahan last Friday, we had not heard from Lujan or his staff for weeks. A lot of questions were being raised in New Mexico and Washington and weren't being answered. However, on Sunday, two days after my interview, the senator posted a video on his social media account where he is seated at a table flanked by two doctors and said he's well on his way to recovery. Hey everybody, United States Senator Ben Ray Lujan here. Let me begin by expressing my thanks for the outpouring of support my family and I have received from across New Mexico and around America, from my neighbors in Nambea to colleagues in Washington, D.C. Your prayers, your words, your daily videos, your words of encouragement have been so reassuring and have given me a lot of strength. I'm doing well, I'm strong, I'm back on the road to recovery and uh, I'm gonna make a full recovery. I'm gonna walk out of here, I'm gonna beat this and I'm gonna be stronger once I come out. So here's my interview with Joe Monahan. It may be a bit dated, but I think it's worth playing. Joe, welcome to The Political Junkie. Well, it's good to be here, Ken. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you. And, you know, when, when the Democrats were worrying about what could possibly go wrong with their tenuous Senate majority, I would think that a 49-year-old senator thought to be in good health getting a stroke was not on their list. I think you're right. Politics is so capable of delivering the surprises just when you don't expect it. And I think that's the appeal of covering politics uh, through the years. This has been a real shocker uh, to not only the nation, but of course, to New Mexico, where Ben Ray Lujan is kind of an institution, served 10 years in the U.S. House. His father was Speaker of the New Mexico House. And here he is now in the hospital, felled by a stroke with the Senate tied 50-50. Not only is health at stake, but, you know, the future of all that important legislation, perhaps, that you lead at, led off at the top of the show with. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the national national perspective. Of course, we all wish Senator Lujan uh, good health, and, and we're not trying to minimize his health when we're talking about politics here. But, you know, one thing that surprised me, and you've written about this, too, is that how Lujan's office dealt with the news. He suffered his stroke on a Thursday and the public wasn't informed about it until the following Tuesday. What was that all about? We don't know what it was all about, and he's starting to take heat for that. They're also taking heat, Ken, for not updating the senator's condition since he's been in the hospital in late January. The most prominent uh, open government uh, group in the state has called for the office and the doctors to update the senator's condition because nothing has been said since an anonymous Senate staffer told the national media back on February 1st, basically, that he would be back to D.C. in four to six weeks. But since then, it's been radio silence, complete darkness. And so this uh, open government group uh, put out a news release, picked up by the papers here, uh, that said, quoted rather ethics experts, saying he's obligated to update his status because he's a United States senator uh, and that we should be getting updates. So we'll see what's going on here. But so far, there's been no confirmation of Senator Lujan communicating in any way with the outside world since he's been in the hospital. There's rumors, but there hasn't been a text from him. No photographs of him have been taken, no video, no audio. So it's been a strange uh, trip down here uh, with with how this is being
being handled. He's known for being very private concerning his, you know, personal affairs, et cetera. But this is not uh, normal in the context of what's happening in the United States right now. And then, you know, when you when you hear a, 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 a sentence like he's expected to make a full recovery, I know more than a few Democrats who need to who need much more than that uh, to be relieved. Yes, the uh, uh, phrase they used was barring any complications, he'll be back to work in four to six weeks, and six weeks would be about the middle of March, so we'll see. But he did undergo brain surgery, and that's very serious surgery, and it can take a long time to recover or even a shorter time to recover, according to the medical literature. But I think what's troubling the Mexicans is they would just like some uh, independent uh, communication from him that says, hey, I'm okay, thanks for your support, I'm recovering and I'll get back to you. That would take care of things. But if he's not doing that, it raises all kinds of rumors whether he's capable of doing that or not, Ken. So that's the speculation that's going on in the state right now. Was there any political maneuvering going on in the state when the news was first revealed? I mean, I'm trying to be delicate here, but was there jockeying going on? Like like possible names should Senator Lujan be unable to continue? Not, of course, there were, there was in the deep political circles, you know, the chattering class, as we call them, but not publicly. And I think that everyone's been pretty respectful of his situation and is hoping, of course, and expects him to get back to work because he's a 49-year-old guy, as you said. In the Senate, that's a relative toddler. So they're hoping he gets back. But there's always speculation in the political circles about there being a vacancy and what would happen, even if there wasn't this unforeseen circumstance. People always speculate. There's always a short list of people who are uh, mentioned by the, by the political people, and that this case is no different. For the record, if there was a vacancy, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, who's a Democrat, she could fill it, is that correct? She would fill it under the law if the seat became vacant. New Mexico is one of those states where the governor appoints a United States senator, and that would be a Democrat, we presume, because she's a Democrat. And it's probably a good chance, and not to get too far ahead of this, but if something did occur like that, it would probably be another Hispanic senator because uh, Ben Ray Lujan is the first Hispanic senator for the state in 45 years. And, of course, we are a majority-minority state here. And this, she's somehow related to the senator, isn't she? She's kind of a distant cousin, yeah. Uh, that's that's their status. Uh, But uh, they've been good friends and, of course, served in Congress for a while. Before she became governor, she was in the U.S. House of Representatives for a couple of terms and served with Ben Ray. So they know each other very well. Has she been asked? I mean, I'm sure it's a sensitive subject. I know that Senator Heinrich looked like that he was kind of annoyed that about questions about that. But but I assume the governor and others have been saying, you know, we need some we deserve some information about the senator's condition. Right. No, there has been no comment from the governor or any other prominent Democratic officials about the status of his health, and I don't think the media has inquired uh, on that front to them. Senator Heinrich did get annoyed and kind of stormed into the Senate elevator, according to CNN, when they asked him if Senator Lujan could walk and talk. And Heinrich said, that's unbelievable, unbelievable, meaning the question he felt was unbelievable. But I think uh, you're right. He got annoyed. And I don't think it's unbelievable for the media or anybody to ask what the senator's condition is. He's an important political figure uh, who has important responsibilities, who's financed by the United States taxpayers. And it's a legitimate media question. It's not, you know, nothing 
that it's not delicate. Uh, and that's why you're not seeing the governor or other political people comment. But they're expecting a comment from Senator Schumer's office, for example. He's quoted in the Albuquerque newspaper today where he's not quoted. I mean, the, the Schumer's office would not comment on Ben Ray Lujan. They were asked to. Senator Heinrich was again asked for comment, and he also refused comment. So you can see this is pretty uh, interesting stuff, Ken, and different than what we're used to seeing. You know, in your great blog, uh, you referred to something that made me smile only because these are kind of like political uh, junkie stuff. I love that when uh, Dennis Chavez, uh, well, n not that this is a, a, a smiling matter, but when Dennis Chavez uh, died in 1962, you had the Republican governor maneuver way of him appointing himself to the Senate vacancy. But... But back when Senator Chavez died, I mean, the Democrats had a huge majority in the Senate. Right now, it's 50-50, and that's what, that's what really makes Senator Lujan's condition that much, that much more important. Well, you're absolutely right. And already several of the committees he sits on, like Senate Commerce, have had to delay appointments to uh, important government uh, agencies like the Federal Trade Commission, I believe, and the FCC because of his absence. So it's already had an impact. This comes at such a historic time. It's incredible, you know, the circumstances that, you know, if the Senate was 58-42, you and I probably won't be doing this interview. You know, but it's 50-50. And I think the longer this drags on, we'll, we'll hear more about it. Hopefully we'll get resolution here in the days ahead. But for now, uh, everybody's on eggshells. I mean, the, the president himself has got to be quite worried about it. I mean, can they get a Republican or two to vote if Lujan can't make it back for the Supreme Court nomination? I think that's the big question uh, that a lot of us are watching as well. Joe Monahan writes the aptly titled blog, New Mexico Politics with Joe Monahan. You can also find his stuff on Twitter at NewsGuy44. Joe, thanks a lot for being on the program. Thanks, kids. It's either truth or consequences. There's no other way. Push truth aside. The other takes its place. Well, you can close your eyes, but that won't make it go away. The truth or consequences must be faced. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. And I hope you've been giving my other podcast a listen. I've teamed up with Kerry Miller of Minnesota Public Radio to produce The Button. And the first two episodes are already up. Give it a listen at button.substack.com. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated more than ever. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Stay warm and stay safe. I'll see you soon.